This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Carrie Lynn Evans, welcoming you back to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm looking forward to sharing with you Inventing Secularism, The Radical Life of George Jacob Holyoke by Ray Argyle. This first modern biography of the founder of secularism describes a transformative figure whose controversial and conflict-filled life helped shape the modern world. Jailed for atheism and disowned by his family, Holyoke came out of an English prison at the age of 25, determined to bring an end to religion's control over daily life. Ever on the front lines of social reform, Holyoke has been hailed for having won the freedoms we take for granted today. With secularism again under siege, Argyle argues that Holyoke's vision of a virtuous society rings today with renewed clarity. Ray Argyle is the author of 11 books, including five biographies, three political histories, a memoir, and a novel of Victorian Canada. He's worked as a journalist, a publishing executive, and a communications consultant, with articles appearing in Canada's major newspapers, as well as magazines such as Reader's Digest, France Today, and World War II History. Having grown up in British Columbia, he is now based in Canada's province of Ontario. He joins me today to tell us about his new book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Secularism. Welcome, Ray. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Carrie, and uh, I'd like to join you in welcoming uh, uh, our uh, listeners today. Excellent. So let's start with you. Tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to be a professional author. Well, I uh, wanted to uh, be an author from, I guess, the age six or seven. Uh, I used to make up little kid books and uh, uh, paste the pages together and scrawl some notes on them, uh, pretend that uh, they were books. Uh, when I uh, uh, finished school, I went straight into journalism, a very busy career with uh, United Press and uh, Canadian newspapers, including the Toronto Telegram, and uh, later uh, set up and ran my own public relations business. So I didn't have time to write books, and uh, uh, but nonetheless, I still uh, wanted to uh, fulfill my uh, childhood ambition. And when I sold my business, uh, I had a long list of uh, projects that I wanted to work on, and I began to uh, to uh, uh, write, uh, which I I think uh, proves uh, uh, I had my first book published in 2004. I think that proves that uh, you're never too young to have a dream or too old to uh, to fulfill it. 
but my interest was uh, in biographies, and uh, I enjoyed doing uh, a lot of personal research, looking out the literary landscape, going to the places where my subjects had lived and worked. And uh, I wrote uh, uh, bios of uh, people like Charles de Gaulle, president of France, uh, 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 Scott, Scott Joplin, uh, the great ragtime uh, composer in the United States, uh, Joey Smallwood, uh, the famous Canadian politician who brought Newfoundland into Canada, and uh, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to uh, uh, pursue my interest in in secularism and and free thought, uh, and that led me to uh, the subject of uh, my uh, newest biography entitled "Inventing Secularism," uh, and the subject is George Jacob. Holyoke, uh, the English social reformer, and the man who invented the word secularism uh, in 1851. Uh, one of my reviewers described, uh, described him as a marginal character in history. Uh, I have to challenge that because uh, while Holyoke is not a, a well-known to the public, he had a tremendous effect on history a transformative effect by marshalling the concept of secularism and uh, ushering it into effect uh, to greater or lesser degrees in countries around the world. That's fantastic. I wanted to ask you about how you conducted your research for this book. Uh, in the case of my research on George Holyoke, uh, I had a lot of material to work with. I could have written a much larger book or even two books uh, because uh, first Holyoke wrote several uh, uh, memoirs. He wrote uh, 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 Life as a Rebel, uh, uh, as an Agitator. Uh, he wrote reminiscences of his uh, uh, career. Uh, so that gave me a lot to go on. There was a lot of uh, public records that I found in archives uh, that I visited in uh, in London, uh, in Birmingham, uh, in Manchester, uh, in uh, Edinburgh, uh, personal correspondence. Uh, and uh, in my media research, of course, I found uh, articles about Holyoke uh, his uh, compatriots, his uh, uh, conflicts, his controversies, uh, his struggle uh, uh, out of a working class life into a respected uh, intellectual leadership uh, that uh, led eventually when he, uh, he lived a very long life and, and when he did pass away, he was hailed as one of the grand old men of England and one of the people who brought us uh, the freedoms that we take for granted today. Right. So let's start with our hero's context of uh, Victorian Britain. So in your opening section, you describe Holyoke's childhood and youth in some detail, as well as Robert Owen's early career in activism. So tell us what their experiences were like and how their early years in the industrial towns of the Midlands shaped their perspectives. Uh, George Holyoke was born into a pretty dreadful period in British history. 
Uh, he was born in April 1817, uh, just after the Napoleonic Wars, and uh, 300,000 soldiers and sailors had been dumped back into the labor market uh, for whom uh, there was no demand, really. Um, Holyoke uh, was born and grew up in the industrial working town of Birmingham. Um, and uh, the uh, factories there were especially affected by the end of the Napoleonic Wars uh, because uh, they were great gunsmiths and uh, had a tremendous uh, business uh, all, all during that period. But England was in uh, in uh, in uh, dire straits. Uh, the uh, the ruling classes were fearful of revolution. Uh, George III had lost the American colonies. Uh, George IV had gone insane, and uh, his son, who would be who would be, George III, had gone insane, and his son, who would become George IV. Uh, was uh, uh, established as the, the prince uh, regent. Uh, there was fear of revolution. Uh, the right of habeas corpus had been uh, suspended. Um, there was even a little revolution in, uh, in, uh, in Derbyshire when a gang of uh, iron workers and farmers uh, gathered up their tools and their pitchforks and set out for Nottingham. Uh, hoping to demand uh, uh, better wages, better working conditions. And of course, there was a spy embedded amongst their bunch, and uh, they were confronted in a pouring rainstorm, uh, all arrested. Uh, three were hanged, uh, later decapitated, and uh, a number were transported to Australia. So uh, George grew up... Uh, at a very difficult time of of unease, unrest, and rebellion, uh, he he did, however, uh, although a member of a working class family, his father worked at uh, the Eagle Foundry uh, in uh, in Birmingham, and uh, young George himself went into the went into the uh, the foundry at the age of about nine or ten. And, and spent 10 or 12 or 13 years working there. Uh, but uh, he had a better, a better uh, upbringing uh, than, uh, than most uh, young uh, uh, people of the working class of that era because his family uh, did have quite a, uh, uh, a well-to-do background. There was uh, ownership of property. Um, George's father, however, uh, as a young, uh, as a younger son, um, uh, benefited from no inheritance and and uh, uh, had to make his own way in in life. Um, his grand George's grandfather, uh, Jacob, uh, ran a, a foundry of his own on on the River Ray in uh, Birmingham. One night, uh, a flood swept everything away, and it was presumed that Jacob was drowned. But 40 years later, young George found out that his grandfather had deserted his family, uh, moved on to Manchester, created a new life for himself. And when he decided to come home, 
uh, he stopped at a hospital, uh, contracted a virus, and died. And George only learned this 40 years later from another uh, old uh, veteran who uh, who knew his grandfather in uh, in uh, uh, Manchester. But in Birmingham, um, George uh, grew up uh, uh, the uh, second uh, uh, second child, first son of uh, 13 children. Uh, his mother was a button maker, uh, and so she had a, a little business that contributed to the family welfare. Uh, George attended the uh, a kind of night school uh, called the Mechanics Institute, uh, where he did uh, very well, uh, but he said that he... Uh, he felt as if he were born with uh, with steel and books in his blood. Uh, when his instructor at the Mechanics Institute died, uh, the other uh, students and teachers insisted that George replace him. So George fulfilled a, an early ambition uh, to become a teacher, but he was uh, under the influence at that time, of a, of a very famous uh, man in Britain named uh, Robert Owen, uh, who was a successful capitalist uh, turned socialist. Uh, Owen had uh, grown up in uh, in Wales. Uh, he'd been uh, apprenticed uh, to a, a draper's shop in London, uh, one that was... Uh, situated on the London Bridge uh, that catered to the elite of the British trade. And uh, George lived uh, uh, in-house in a little room over the store, but was brought down every morning before breakfast, uh, dressed in uh, formal clothes, uh, given a wig, uh, washed and dusted, uh, ready for the day's business. Owen was very successful, however, in 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 that work, uh, and was able to borrow some money from his brother, and uh, moved on to Manchester, where he became uh, uh, a partner in in a knitting business, and uh, later later uh, acquired a partnership in a in a very successful uh, cotton mill in Glasgow. And uh, it was at that time that uh, Robert Owen uh, began to uh, uh, become doubtful uh, about organized uh, religion and felt that all religions were, were, merely, uh, were merely superstitions. Uh, he, began, he, be, he began to organize cooperative communities. Uh, none of them did too well. He had one in the United States called New Harmony uh, in Indiana. Uh, it failed. He came back to England, um, put more more money into into similar projects, and uh, hired the uh, the London Tavern one summer uh, to uh, make a speech about uh, the superstitions of religion. Uh, he maintains that there were thousands of people came out for it, and uh, he arranged uh, uh, by paying off the newspapers. 
to get favorable accounts in uh, in all of the London papers and had 30,000 copies distributed to leaders around Europe, uh, across England, uh, France, and Germany. And uh, from that from that point, uh, uh, went on to uh, to uh, establish uh, what he called the Society of uh, Rational Religionists. Now, as I ask in the book, Inventing Secularism, uh, is it possible to be rational about religion? But uh, Owen uh, uh, had a successful run with this group, and one of the recruits that he attracted when he held a meeting in Birmingham was young George Holyoke. And uh, Holyoke, at this point, was running into some difficulty uh, teaching at the Mechanics Institute. I think he was uh, a little bit arrogant in his views. His mother had taught him to uh, to be patient and respectful of other people's ideas. Uh, as a young man, uh, George was uh, did not always follow that example, and he found himself uh, forced out. Uh, from the Mechanics Institute, but he did catch on with the uh, rational religionists and became what was known as a uh, social missionary. Uh, He was uh, sent first to the uh, west uh, country town of uh, of Worcester, uh, where he gave his his, uh, lectures at what they called the Hall of Science. They wanted to distinguish themselves from uh, other religions. And uh, he, uh, he gave talks on mathematics, astronomy, all of the kinds, <clears throat> kinds of things uh, that young people were not learning in school uh, in those days. Uh, he was so successful <clears throat> that he was promoted uh, to a more important post in, uh, in, uh, Suff- in uh, Sheffield, uh, the great steel-making town. Now, in Sheffield, uh, he, uh, he developed a very loyal following. He, uh, he became well-known in the community, and he probably <clears throat> would have spent his life as a borderline agnostic, as a social missionary uh, for Robert Owen's rational religionists, but for one thing. He had a close friend, uh, Charles Southwell, uh, a charismatic young man, a little older than uh, George. Uh, He'd fought in a Spanish uh, war He'd worked as an actor. He was a charismatic figure. And he had established his own atheistic newspaper in Bristol uh, called uh, the, uh, uh, the Oracle of Wisdom. And in that paper, he published diatribes against Christianity uh, and the Bible 
Uh, he referred to uh, the Bible as a dirty book uh, filled with uh, uh, violence and sex and uh, uh, observed that uh, no respectable uh, wife uh, should allow one in her home. Well, the, uh, the uh, Anglican Church was not going to allow him to get away with that. Uh, he was uh, charged with blasphemy, uh, arrested, and uh, George uh, was outraged uh, at the thought that uh, his friend was not permitted to uh, express his own uh, uh, free will and uh, made speeches in Sheffield. He said that uh, he said that he he uh, he now uh, 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 revolts at the touch of a, a Christian and flees as if from a viper. Well, uh, that pretty well did it. Uh, and George was unsure of whether uh, he was going to be, uh, uh, whether he was going to have a job much longer. So uh, he threw things over in Sheffield, uh, took his family uh, back to uh, the family home, uh, the Holy Oak home in Birmingham, and set out uh, to walk uh, to Bristol uh, to see his friend uh, Charles Southwell, uh, who was being held there in prison. Uh, when he got to uh, Bristol, uh, he picked up a, a newspaper uh, reporting a speech uh, that he had made uh, at Cheltenham, where he'd stopped en route. Uh, He'd actually given quite an innocuous talk uh, on the subject of uh, what was known as home colonization. The idea was that rather than having to uh, head off to the colonies and risk your life and your future, you should be able to have uh, a, a home of security in England and uh, the rational religionists were promoting uh, the establishment of uh, cooperative communities where workers would band together uh, and share the, the profits of their industries. So that was the subject of uh, George's speech. But uh, in the question period, uh, the, uh, the Anglican minister for the district had planted a spy uh, to ask George uh, a leading question. And the question was this, Mr. Holyoke, you have spoken a lot about man's duty to man, but you have said nothing about man's duty to God. Uh, do you not believe in God? Uh, do you not think we should have churches. Uh, now that question puzzled George because he was an honest man and he felt he had to give it an honest answer. And his reply was, I cannot believe in God. Uh, if you do, uh, you can pay for the churches, you can pay for him, 
but I think we should do with God what we do with our retired military officers is to put them on half pay. Well, that was a, a sarcastic and satirical comment uh, that drew the applause and, and, uh, and laughter of the audience. But when George read about it in the paper, it was presented as, a, as an evil and blasphemous speech with a demand uh, that he be arrested and be brought to account. Now, George was not going to duck that issue. He returned immediately to Cheltenham, uh, arranged to make another speech, and after uh, uh, two hours of, uh, of talk, uh, he wound up his talk, and uh, he, f he saw that there were policemen, <clears throat> policemen lined up all around the corners of the hall. And he was arrested and charged with blasphemy and taken to prison. Uh, the next morning was called in uh, and brought up before three magistrates, two of, <clears throat> two of which, by the way, were Anglican clergymen. And he was, he was ordered to uh, trial at the uh, summer assizes uh, that were to be held in, in Gloucester in August of 1842. Uh, he managed to get bay, bail, uh, so he, he went back to Birmingham very briefly to see his family, then headed off to London. And in London, he found himself a hero among the free thinkers, and he met uh, many famous people like uh, Richard Carlyle, uh, who had published uh, Tom, Tom Paine's uh, Rights of Man. Yeah, he'd done a very clever thing. Rather than publish the book in its entirety, uh, which would make it too expensive for the working man to afford, he broke it up into small segments of uh, small pamphlets and, and sold, uh, sold the pamphlets for a penny or two each. Uh, now, uh, Richard Carlyle had been sent to jail, um, but he was out on bail uh, and uh, 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 took a liking to, uh, to Holyoke, uh, showed him around London, uh, Holyoke uh, listened to speeches in the House of Commons uh, and returned to, uh, to uh, uh, Gloucester uh, uh, for, uh, to Cheltenham for, for his trial. Um, it was an amazing trial. It went on for two days. He pleaded not guilty. He defended himself. In his, in his defense, he spoke, he spoke for nine hours, imagine, for nine hours. Well, uh, he made a great talk. He, gave, he quoted all the, the great figures of history. He uh, explained why he had not uh, uh, really committed a blasphemy. Uh, 
but threw himself on the mercy of the jury. And I think the jury, uh, if they had uh, paid attention to him, were worn out after nine hours uh, of his lecture. And uh, so they retired to uh, uh, consider the case and returned in two minutes. And in two minutes, they found him guilty. Uh, the justice, who uh, was rather uh, uh, inclined to uh, uh, give uh, George any break that he could, uh, said, now, did you, did you really intend to, to uh, uh, insult the deity as you did? And Holyoke uh, would not back down. Uh, he was ready to go to jail. Uh, he wanted to stand up for his his principles. Uh, so he was sentenced to six months in the uh, in the uh, prison in 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 Gloucester, uh, and he had a hard time uh, while there. Uh, he refused uh, to cooperate uh, to follow the rules of the prison. He uh, he refused to wear to wear a uniform, uh, or to uh, or to go to uh, to the church services, and uh, uh, finally uh, uh, he received the, the the terrible news that his young daughter had died uh, of uh, disease and malnutrition. Now, I need to back up just to say that George had left his, his wife and his young uh, two-year-old daughter uh, uh, in, in uh, Birmingham, but his family, who were very, very embarrassed by uh, uh, George's arrest uh, for blasphemy, uh, pretty well disowned him. Uh, refused to take in his wife and child, and uh, they were uh, reduced to uh, uh, living on 10 shillings a week uh, that was sent to them by the Anti-Persecution Union, but nonetheless um, had to take lodging in a, in a, in a cheap, uh, disease-ridden uh, rooming house uh, where the child uh, contracted a fever and died. And uh, uh, George was not allowed uh, a leave of absence to go to the, uh, to the funeral, but his wife and uh, his sister did come to visit him. And uh, finally, in, uh, in February of 1843, uh, George was released and he was determined to set out in his words, on the war path. And uh, he began making speeches around England on free thought and on atheism and uh, was able to establish his own paper, uh, which he called the movement, and uh, again ran into trouble uh, with uh, the, the rational religionists because he made a visit uh, to one of the uh, 
the cooperative uh, communities uh, that Owen had established uh, in in England, and and found that uh, there was tremendous waste of uh, of investors' money, uh, most of the money having come from workers who would send send a few pennies a week, and uh, as a result of the exposures. that uh, Holyoke ran in in uh, his paper, uh, he lost uh, most of his subscribers, uh, and the paper went under. So what was he going to do? Well, he uh, he was offered a position in uh, uh, in Glasgow, Scotland, uh, with the Rational Religionists. Uh, it was a small and rather a uh, dying uh, uh, um, group uh, that uh, he uh, visited uh, in Glasgow. But while there, a most fortunate uh, occurrence uh, took place. Uh, George uh, met uh, at uh, the annual meeting of the uh, Manchester Cooperative Union, <clears throat> which was... Uh, uh, a national organization uh, which promoted the idea of cooperation among workers. Uh, the concept uh, was to uh, establish uh, uh, industries where uh, the workers and the customers uh, would uh, share in the profits. And the cooperative movement uh, did become a great. Uh, uh, social reform in England uh, still uh, is active today. Uh, your credit union, many of you, your rural uh, co-op stores are, are part of uh, the, the cooperative movement. But in, uh, in Glasgow, uh, George met uh, uh, John Dickinson, the president of the Manchester uh, United Cooperative Union, and uh, they had a contest, a literary contest. Uh, they were looking for five essays that would set out the principles, uh, uh, the principles driving uh, the cooperative movement: uh, justice, uh, fair play, uh, respect, uh, decency and so on. Uh, So George uh, set about uh, writing five essays entering each of the five contests, each of which uh, promised uh, a a prize of 10 pounds. And George thought, uh, well, he could see his job in, uh, in Glasgow coming to an end. He thought it would be very nice if he could win 10 pounds and that would uh, well set him up uh, back in London. So George uh, did did give up his job in Glasgow. He, he entered the contest, uh, had high hopes, but of course knew uh, not what uh, might happen. Uh, returned to London, uh, took, a, took a flat and... Uh, uh, began to plan 
with with a printer friend uh, the launch of a new paper. Of course, uh, neither of them had the money uh, to put out uh, uh, an entirely new paper. But uh, one morning, uh, the doorbell was knocked. Uh, uh, the door the door ringer was knocked on on the flat where uh, George lived, and uh, it was none other than Mr. Dickinson from the uh, Manchester United Cooperative. And he he handed George an envelope. In that envelope, in that envelope, George found five ten pound notes. He'd never seen so much money. Well, he'd won all five essays. Fifty pounds. A fabulous amount of money. So that became the basic financing for George Holyoke's famous newspaper, The Reasoner. And from 1847 through into the early 1860s, he published every week The Reasoner, uh, reviews of current events, articles about religion, uh, editorials, uh, reports of, uh, of his speeches. But he began to realize that uh, the concept of atheism was never going to capture uh, the loyalty or the following of uh, the great mass of uh, English people who were yearning for a better life, who were uh, disenchanted uh, with the Anglican Church and with the dissenting churches uh, and dissenting Protestant uh, uh, movements uh, that had been formed. And uh, George began to realize that a new approach was needed and uh, he gave thought to how better one might present the idea that uh, we should have a society in which uh, people would be uh, free uh, to pursue uh, their lives without religious control. Uh, without religious determination over entry to the profession, uh, over holding a seat in Parliament, uh, over uh, entry to the uh, universities, uh, all of which was under uh, control of the, of the Church of England. And uh, in my book, uh, Inventing Secularism, uh, I have a paragraph uh, perhaps I might read a few lines of uh, of where I uh, picture how uh, George Holyoke would have come to the view that a new approach was needed 
to bring the English people to the viewpoint that religion must be removed from the public arena. And so while I read these few lines, I begin, one can picture it, Holyoke up late in his rooms in Tavistock Square in London, stabbing with his pen at the sheet of paper in front of him at his desk for hours on this midsummer night of 1851, searching for the word to describe a single transfixing idea, one that would hasten the day when the public would enjoy a society shorn of religious regulation over every aspect of life. His table cluttered with Latin texts, French volumes, and London newspapers. Holyoke reaches for Dr. Samuel Johnson's dictionary, still the final authority on Her Majesty's, on Her Majesty's English. He finds the word secular, not spiritual, relating to affairs of the present world, not holy, worldly, with a flash of insight and a scratch of his pen. Holyoke creates a new English noun, secularism. Now, unlike today, when the language was, is filled with isms, Using that suffix to create a new word, a new word, secularism, was an act of rare creativity in George Holyoke's time. So that's a little bit about how George Holyoke uh, came to the word secularism and came to the concept. Uh, that society must move to an era when religion was no longer in control of our lives or of the public arena. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, it's amazing to track how, how much adversity he experienced in his early years and how he just kept going back to writing. He worked for a number of different papers, opened a number of different papers, um, and that clearly uh, eventually paid off for him, as difficult as the beginning was, um, to the point where perhaps around the middle of his life, he was even uh, welcomed into the very fashionable literary cloud, or crowd, if I could say so. Um, and uh, I think there was a bit of a, as you allude to in your book, there was a bit of a um, negotiation over how stridently atheist 
his movement should be. Um, his his friend Charles Bradlaugh seemed to argue that they should be um, fighting for atheism, the defiance of God. Whereas uh, it seems as though Holyoke was holding out for a more something what we would recognize as secularism today, just an absence of religion in the um, public space. But maybe tell us about some of the um, friends that he ended up making in the literary crowd. Well, yes, I'd, I'd like to do that because uh, George recognized uh, that uh, if uh, the concept uh, that he had created of secularism uh, was to prevail uh, and was to gain uh, the support of the establishment, uh, that he needed uh, 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 he needed uh, uh, broader support uh, than that which uh, he would find among the working class. Uh, he needed to reach upward uh, and, and uh, gain the support of the of the thought leaders, of the intellectuals, of the writers, the authors, the lecturers, the educators. Uh, how was he going to do this? Well, uh, the opportunity uh, arose uh, that, he, that he cleverly took advantage of when one of the uh, leading uh, uh, English uh, authors of the, of the day uh, George Henry Lewes uh, published a, a biography of the French uh, revolutionary leader, uh, Maximilien Robespierre. Now, as it happened, uh, Holyoke was a great admirer of uh, Robespierre. Uh, why, I can't imagine, uh, except that he said that uh, uh, Robespierre wrote his uh, his uh, speeches in longhand uh, and, and never smudged the page or crossed out a word. Now, uh, when Lewes, uh, George Henry Lewes, uh, 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 published his uh, his uh, uh, book on Robespierre, uh, George reviewed it in the Reasoner. Uh, uh, over uh, two issues, and uh, sent uh, copies <coughs> uh, along to uh, to lose, uh, uh, asking him for his opinion, and uh, uh, to his great surprise, uh, Holyoke received a a very friendly uh, letter back uh, from Lose, uh, inviting him to come and. Uh, uh, smoke a cigar with me uh, one evening. Uh, so uh, George did that. Uh, uh, and on the appointed evening, uh, when he arrived uh, at uh, the Lou's home in, in Kensington, uh, then is now uh, uh, one of the toniest districts uh, in London, uh, he was introduced to uh, uh, a young man, Thornton Hunt, uh, the son of uh, uh, a famous uh, English uh, poet uh, of that era. So here he was uh, in uh, in George Lou's living room. Uh, uh, Lou's wife, Agnes, uh, uh, 
pouring tea, uh, uh, Lou's handing out uh, cigars, uh, probably of uh, of uh, Turkish uh, uh, vintage, uh, and and uh, the two uh, Lou's and uh, and Hunt uh, telling George of their plans for a new paper to be called the Leader. Uh, they would express express advanced uh, advanced thoughts uh, and and f- free free thought. Uh, uh, points of view uh, to the English public, and uh, and would George, <coughs> uh, uh, Lou's asked him, uh, would George be interested <coughs> in being business manager of the paper? Well, uh, Holyoke was uh, thunderstruck uh, that uh, two men of such a distinction uh, would wish to uh, associate. Uh, uh, him, uh, the lowly son of a worker, uh, a well-known atheist, uh, an imprisoned uh, blasphemer, uh, uh, he was thunderstruck that they would wish to have him uh, as part of uh, of their enterprise. Uh, he agreed certainly to do that, uh, providing he could uh, continue uh, with uh, 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 the reasoner his own paper, and his relationship with these two men uh, opened up a broad vista uh, of the English intellectual class uh, to George uh, Holyoke. Uh, uh, George didn't realize it at the time, uh, but George uh, Lewis and his wife uh, uh, Agnes were in an open marriage uh, uh, in fact, uh, his wife had had uh, uh, several children by another man, uh, but George had had uh, George Lewis had accepted them as as his own uh, as his own children. Uh, now, among the people that that uh, George Holyoke met uh, through Lewis uh, was Mary Ann Evans. Who would become famous uh, as a novelist uh, under the name George Eliot, and and write such uh, novels as Middlemarch, which, by the way, uh, uh, just within the past year or so, has been uh, chosen by the editors of Time Magazine as one of the greatest uh, of all. Uh, uh, English uh, novels. Uh, now, uh, now, uh, uh, Marianne Evans was involved at that time uh, with Herbert Spencer, another famous uh, English intellectual, uh, a philosopher uh, whose uh, uh, ideas about uh, uh, the survival of the fittest um, came to be known as. Uh, a social Darwinism, uh, what we'd call today uh, an extreme uh, uh, libertarian uh, position. Uh, as it happened, uh, Spencer uh, ditched uh, Mary, uh, Mary Ann, and then took up with Lou's wife, Agnes. So uh, you can imagine the, uh, the uh, environment. And then there was uh, Thomas... Uh, 
Thomas Huxley, another great name in English history, another Darwinite uh, that uh, uh, George met. Uh, uh, Huxley was uh, was Darwinite's bulldog, uh, uh, the man who who pushed uh, uh, the the idea of uh, of uh, evolution when Darwin himself was reluctant to do so. Um, and and uh, 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 went on to uh, invent the word agnosticism. Uh, but uh, you know, among the people that uh, uh, Holyoke met, uh, one uh, whom he most admired uh, was Harriet Martineau, uh, considered uh, the first uh, uh, female. Uh, sociologists. Uh, she'd become popular <clears throat> with uh, small books, uh, fictional books that she had written about economics, explaining uh, uh, the workings of the money system. And uh, these had become immensely popular among the English public and uh, contributed greatly to her, her literary and, and financial success. Um, she was an amazing woman. Um, she and, uh, and, uh, George became, uh, uh, dear friends. Uh, she was a great, a great supporter of, uh, of, uh, secularism. Um, she, um, um, she had a, a very serious disability, uh, due to a childhood disease uh, she'd lost uh, any sense of taste or smell, and and uh, she'd become uh, uh, mostly deaf, uh, and had to hold a large trumpet uh, to her ear uh, to uh, uh, listen to uh, and hear what anyone uh, might be saying to her. But uh, to George Holyoke, uh, he thought. Uh, she was the greatest uh, political woman uh, in English uh, history. Now, uh, it was at about this time when uh, Holyoke brought out his first book, uh, The Principles of Secularism. Uh, and it's interesting, I think, because long before the world had ever heard of the uh, Four Freedoms, of uh, Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, the freedoms that um, that the two had enunciated uh, on the deck of a warship uh, docked in the harbor off uh, uh, Newfoundland uh, during the Second World War, uh, long before the world had ever heard of those, uh, George Holyoke had enunciated in his book. Uh, principles of secularism, uh, the four rights, the four rights, the rights that people should all be entitled to, the right to think for yourself, the right to differ from other people's opinions, the right to assert yourself, what we would call freedom of expression and the right to debate uh, 
those ideas uh, in the public. Uh, so uh, the, through meeting people in the upper strata uh, of the English uh, intellectual milieu uh, and uh, publishing a, uh, challenging articles in The Reasoner, uh, writing books like Principles of Secularism, uh, slowly the idea of secularism began to seep into the English consciousness. Um, it was about this time that uh, <clears throat> George lost his great mentor, uh, Robert Owen, who uh, had returned to Wales and had died in his hometown of Newton. <clears throat> and George Holyoke, in, in, in company with uh, uh, some close friends, uh, traveled from London uh, by train uh, as far as Wales, the end of the line, uh, where they had to uh, take a uh, what we'd think of as a stagecoach uh, for the rest of the trip. And in his memoir, uh, Holyoke has a marvelous line uh, that evokes the uh, the uh, the sound and the sight of that trip uh, by horse and carriage, the last few miles, where he where he describes the final leg, and writes of, and I quote, the snorting breath of the horses, and the sound of the blowing bugle of the coachman. Now can't you just envision the party traveling across and down the English uh, and Welsh countryside uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, the destination in Wales and, 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 and Owen's, Owen's funeral? Now I should go on at this point and respond to your reference to uh, Charles Bradlaugh, who uh, played a, a very central and very controversial uh, role in, uh, in George Holyoke's life. Uh, Bradlaugh was a, a handsome, strapping man uh, who had, at a very early age <clears throat> set out on a, on a, a life of, of, of challenge. Uh, uh, of uh, uh, a, a tough, uh, resolute uh, uh, approach uh, to the society in which he found himself. And uh, ironically, uh, he was introduced uh, to his first uh, public speech as a speaker. He was introduced by George Holyoke. Uh, he was 17 years old uh, when Bradlaugh made his first public speech. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> they, they lived uh, a life of conflict and controversy because Bradlaugh was rigidly atheist, uh, Holyoke <clears throat> not so much. Uh, Bradlaugh wanted only atheists <laughs> in the secular movement. 
Holyoke saw uh, a space for everyone, uh, including active Christians, as long as they agreed <clears throat> to keep religion in the church and and uh, not to uh, to try to to use it to uh, control the law uh, the government in the schools now it was a woman uh the beauteous Annie Besant, a beautiful young woman uh who came between Holyoke and Bradlaw uh as much as did their ideas uh Annie was married to a Church of England minister, but she became dissatisfied uh, with the with the church uh, dogma, uh, an unhappy uh, living in in the provincial town where uh, where her husband was uh, ministering uh, to his flock. Uh, she left him uh, and took their son with with her. Uh, and moved to London. Uh, and once there, uh, she found uh, a copy of a newspaper uh, published by Charles Bradlaugh called The National Reformer. And it was uh, promoting a meeting the following Sunday uh, of uh, Charles's uh, new society, uh, a society that he had formed in 1866, the National Secular Society. <clears throat> now, Annie inquired of the newspaper, do you have to be an atheist to come to this meeting? Well, she was told, no, of course not. You can come to the meeting. So she did. <clears throat> she arrived at the meeting, uh, found the hall crowded, uh, and she was... Uh, as she wrote later, uh, she was impressed and surprised uh, when she first saw Bradlaw. Uh, uh, at the end of the meeting, it came time for uh, the membership certificates to be handed out, and Annie had applied to become a member. Now, uh, uh, Bradlaw... Uh, no doubt uh, attracted uh, by the sight of Annie Besant, uh, went to her and personally gave her her membership uh, certificate. And uh, uh, from that, a, a deep friendship developed. Uh, he, he went to uh, uh, listen to her speak uh, at a, uh, a woman's meeting <clears throat> a few nights later. Uh, and commented that uh, that he thought it was the best speech <clears throat> by a woman uh, uh, that he'd ever heard. Um, well, uh, within a month, uh, Annie Besant was working at Bradlaugh's paper, uh, The Reformer, uh, and, and Bradlaugh told her <clears throat> when he saw some of her writing, he said, you know, Annie... <clears throat> Uh, you've been an atheist uh, uh, without uh, without knowing it. Now uh, Holyoke was a a, a partner with uh, Bradlaw uh, in this new National Reformer because he had by then 
uh, given up his own paper, uh, uh, The Reasoner, uh, they probably would have remained partners uh, in their common struggle uh, for secularism, despite their differences uh, of opinion, uh, except for the fact <clears throat> that uh, both um, Besant and Bradlaugh were ardent advocates of birth control. So here you had two truly radical people, atheists, secularists, advocates of birth control at a time when the, the, the very idea was repugnant and uh, illegal. Now, uh, they decided, <clears throat> Besant and Bradlaugh, decided to republish an American uh, book on birth control. Uh, when Holyoke got wind of this, uh, he was uh, really upset because uh, while being a uh, uh, very progressive thinker in, in most areas of social reform, uh, being a supporter of labor unions, uh, of a, a woman's right to vote, uh, of uh, the idea of an open Sunday where people could uh, play games and enjoy themselves, uh, notwithstanding all of that, uh, he was still a social conservative uh, at heart and, and had a lot of difficulty uh, with the issue of birth control. And he wrote to uh, Annie Bassett and said to her, uh, if you intend to publish this work, it means ruin to you as a lady. Well, <clears throat> she disregarded the advice. Uh, Bradlaugh and Bassant published the pamphlet, uh, advertised it, notified the police that they had put it out and that it would be on sale in their office on a certain date. And sure enough, on that date, uh, two police officers uh, arrived, uh, purchased copies, and uh, <clears throat> subsequently, <clears throat> both uh, Besant and Bradlaugh were charged with blasphemy. Now, uh, it, the trial was... Uh, was a little bit of a comic opera affair. Uh, it dragged on for months and months. Uh, and in the end, uh, uh, in the end, uh, uh, the judge uh, uh, came in with a conviction. Uh, and when Bradlaugh said, uh, will you hold off on that uh, and let us out uh, until we have our appeal? Uh, the judge said, do you promise not to promote birth control in the meantime? And Bradlaugh said, oh, indeed not. Uh, so the, the, the judge reversed himself, uh, withheld sentence on the conviction uh, while an appeal could be held. And when the appeal came on the following spring, the case was thrown out uh, on a technicality. Uh, uh, so it was an embarrassment uh, 
to the British judicial system, uh, uh, to the establishment. Uh, but there you have it. Uh, and Bradlaugh ran for parliament. He set another record. <clears throat> he got himself elected as the first uh, avowed atheist uh, ever uh, uh, chosen uh, to sit in the House of Commons. Well, when he got to the House, they refused to seat him because he, he wouldn't take the oath. So this went on for months and months and months. And finally, Bradlaugh said, okay, I'll take the oath. He got his seat and uh, promptly had a bill introduced, which was passed, uh, which permitted atheists or people of whatever uh, uh, religious uh, viewpoint uh, to have a seat uh, in the in the House of Commons. In the meantime, uh, difficulties uh, had, had uh, worsened between Holyoke uh, <clears throat> and Bradlaugh. Uh, Holyoke uh, uh, quit the National uh, Secular Society, <clears throat> started his own uh, uh, British Secular Union. Um, it was really all a tempest in a teapot, uh, but uh, <clears throat> uh, his union didn't last very long. And uh, tragically, uh, Bradlaugh died in the early 1890s uh, in his 50s uh, of uh, Bright's disease, or what we know today as nephritis. And uh, George Holyoke gave a, a notable eulogy in, in his memory, uh, referring to Bradlaugh as the, the most illustrious fighting propagandist ever seen. So that, that ended the, the, uh, the uh, long uh, years of, of uh, conflict and controversy between uh, Holyoke uh, and Charles Bradlaugh. So you mentioned earlier uh, Holyoke's um, involvement in the cooperative movement, and you come back around to that again towards the end of his life, because it seems like um, that was maybe the majority of his focus uh, towards his later years. And you mentioned, too, that this was in part due to his experience traveling. He had the opportunity to travel to Canada, uh, or sorry, I think I'm thinking of the United States and uh, and other places around the world, and that strengthened his ideas for this cooperative movement. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, indeed. I, the cooperative movement uh, played a very important role uh, in in George's life, as he did in the success of, of the co-op movement. Uh, his... Uh, uh, Holyoke's loss of uh, of uh, soul uh, control over the the secular movement uh, to Bradlaugh um, brought, uh, I'd say, both misgivings and, and new hope uh, uh, to George Holyoke. Uh, he simply turned his attention, while while not to, uh, ever forgetting. Uh, his commitment to secularism. He turned his attention to the 
the, the second of the great uh, causes of, of his life, uh, the co-op movement. Um, I think, as I mentioned earlier, uh, George had long been uh, concerned about uh, uh, the unfair spread in prices uh, between the wages uh, uh, that producers, uh, farmers, uh, mill workers, and so on, uh, between what they received for their labor uh, or their goods uh, and the prices uh, that consumers had to pay uh, for them. Um, uh, as one of the uh, social activists of the day, uh, he believed that a system of co-ops in which uh, uh, customers would receive a share of profits uh, would correct uh, that evil. Now, uh, Holyoke soon uh, found himself as a uh, the leading advocate uh, for the co-op movement, uh, and both its uh, chief historian uh, and leading uh, spokesperson. In fact, uh, in the very first meeting uh, of a of a group of uh, of weavers uh, in in Richmond in Lancashire uh, in eighteen forty four. 1843, uh, shortly after he'd gotten out of prison, uh, when they were having uh, uh, their first meeting uh, to discuss the idea of setting up a co-op, he spoke to them and he said, and I'll quote just a couple of lines, he said, do it now. What you save will be your own. And you will get things as good as your neighbors. And truly, that has uh, that is how it's turned out. Uh, today, uh, the headquarters of the uh, co-op union uh, uh, in Manchester uh, bears uh, the name, uh, as I found out on my visit there, of Holyoke House. It was uh, built in... Uh, and opened in 1911, uh, five years after after George's death. Now, an interesting sidelight is that uh, uh, as an ambassador uh, for the co-op movement, uh, George traveled widely, uh, addressed uh, uh, many uh, co-op conventions in, in France uh, and Italy, uh, and other countries, and uh, in uh, in 1879, uh, the Union sent him to America on the first of two trips. Now, the uh, the, the 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 co-op unionists had always been concerned about uh, uh, young uh, British people having to. Uh, travel overseas to find uh, opportunity, and uh, <clears throat> you'll remember I, I spoke of uh, George uh, giving a speech on home colonization, the one that got him into trouble and and, and got him sent to jail. Uh, now uh, the the union <clears throat> asked George to uh, go to America. <clears throat> 
and talk to the governments in the United States and Canada uh, about uh, uh, publishing a manual uh, that would be of assistance uh, to those who uh, who did decide to to emigrate to uh, to uh, to North America. Uh, he wanted something. They wanted something that would prepare uh, immigrants for life in 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 their new country. Uh, George went first to uh, the states, uh, visited Washington, uh, where he met the uh, the Ameri- the uh, the celebrated American free thinker uh, Colonel uh, Colonel Robert Ingersoll. <coughs> Ingersoll was known as the great agnostic, and uh, he was able to get Holyoke a, me- a meeting with uh, President Rutherford B. Hayes. Now Hayes. Uh, uh, listened uh, uh, politely uh, to Rutherford, uh, to, uh, to to Holyoke, uh, loaded him up with a, uh, a lot of maps of the United States, uh, but did nothing about publishing a settler's guides book. Now, <clears throat> George Holyoke had better better luck in, in Ottawa. Uh, it was... Uh, uh, on his second trip to America, uh, this time accompanied by his daughter, his daughter Emily, uh, that they reached Ottawa. Uh, they got a luncheon with uh, Prime Minister Sir John A. Macdonald. Um, and Holyoke recorded that uh, uh, Sir John wanted to talk about everything but immigration. Yeah. He particularly wanted to talk about Canadian painters, because he was upset and angry with Canadian painters. Um, He said they were the defamers of Canada. Uh, All they paint, uh, Holyoke quoted MacDonald as saying, all they paint uh, are the snow, the sledges, uh, and ice, Uh, the ripened fruit, the golden harvests we never see painted. Well, the fact is, however, MacDonald did agree to have his government put out a settler's guide, as Holyoke suggested. <clears throat> it showed up in Britain the next uh, couple of years later in 1882, and immigration immediately notched up. Uh, it went from 48,000 in 1881, to 183,000 in 1883. And immigration from Britain stayed high right through to the First World War uh, with with, uh, the number of newcomers uh, uh, topping out in 1913 uh, at 400,000 arrivals. So that was a success uh, as far as Holyoke and the, and the cooperative movement were concerned. And it was important to Canada because uh, in the years after uh, Confederation, uh, which took place in 1867, in the years after the Confederation of the British North American colonies 
into the Dominion of Canada. Uh, Canada lost as many people to the United States as it gained uh, in immigrants uh, from Europe, uh, almost uh, uh, almost exclusively from Britain at that time. So it was important to reverse that drain. And it looks as if uh, uh, the, the Settler's Guide uh, did a lot to, toward that. Now, a, a sidelight I should mention is that Holyoke was plagued with ill health uh, all through his life. Uh, as a youth, uh, he was never expected to live into his 20s. Um, he suffered malnutrition, uh, poor eyesight, uh, at one time going blind. <clears throat> uh, he had a, a, a primitive operation was, was performed, uh, to remove cataracts, uh, and it was a success. Amazingly, uh, at that at that time, it was a success. It it did restore his sight, uh, but he had many amusing encounters. Being uh, amusing and also dangerous, of course, uh, being knocked down by traffic in London, uh, being run over by a bicyclist uh, by a cyclist in 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 Brighton. Uh, to which he had retired. Uh, one Sunday morning, he was going down the street, and there were two women ahead of him, and this cyclist came barreling along, uh, bar barely missing the two women, but striking George and knocking him down. And George thought, well, that's only proper. If you have to choose between knocking down a woman and a man, it's better to, to, knock, down, to knock down a man. But uh, despite all of uh, his ill health, uh, Holyoke uh, lived uh, a remarkable 88 years. Uh, he died of heart failure uh, at home in bed. Uh, his bed had been moved into his library uh, where he spent his last days, and he died on January the 22nd of 1906. And that was five years to the day after Queen Victoria. Uh, their lifespans had nearly matched each other. And interestingly, you know, all of the, uh, uh, all of the uh, status quo of social conditions, uh, uh, social behavior, uh, class distinctions, uh, church uh, control, Anglican influence over the schools, all of those uh, uh, factors that are associated with the, the, the period of uh, Queen Victoria's reign um, were all uh, dropping away uh, to the wayside uh, in the face of uh, the new spirit of... Uh, freedom of individualism and democracy, all engendered by this concept of secularism. So uh, while the lifespans of George Holyoke and Queen Victoria uh, matched each other, uh, so too did their impact on society. 
uh, with Queen Victoria reigning over a dying social uh, uh, condition, and Holyoke, uh, the uh, the advocate uh, uh, and chief uh, instigator uh, of a new era in uh, in British uh, uh, social life, and. Uh, as I think I'd mentioned, uh, uh, the British press was filled with praise uh, for George Holyoke, um, one of England's grand old men, uh, was the line in the in the London Chronicle. Another paper uh, put it even more strongly, uh, and I'll quote this: uh, Holyoke one of the men who fought for and won for Englishmen that freedom of speech which we take as a matter of course today. So at the time uh, of his death, uh, his life's aims, I think, had been largely accomplished. England was marching towards secularism, and despite the uh, the uh, technicalities of uh, of a monarchy uh, uh, and a, and a, and a, a monarch who is defender of the faith, uh, despite that, uh, I think that uh, uh, there's no figure in modern British history uh, who has had such a transformative effect. Uh, on life, not only in his country, but in the rest of the world, where, uh, for example, France has followed its own uh, form of secularism. Uh, The United States has enunciated the separation of church and state in its constitution. Um, And we do see a declining uh, influence uh, of uh, the church, of all churches, of all Christian churches uh, in social life today. Uh, clearly, uh, George Holyoke was a man of the future, a man who uh, helped to make the modern world that we live in today. Yeah, as you point out, uh, as of last year, it was exactly 150 years since George Holyoke's death. And uh, during his life, he spearheaded a great deal of important reform that pointed the way to the future that we enjoy today. Um, But as you also point out, uh, that's not always a linear progress. There is a little bit of uh, regression, I feel, sometimes here and there throughout the world today. And you suggest that um, one of the um, steps we could take against those problems would be an education to educate people about what secularism and its goals actually are. So can you speak to this a little bit? Well, well, I think it's very important that, uh, that uh, we do more of that. Uh, you know, uh, when George uh, was uh, uh, asked to uh, uh, develop the uh, a curriculum uh, for a secular school, uh, he said, well, one of the main things would be that I would have the students <clears throat> learn about all religions, uh, Christianity, uh, Muslim, uh, 
Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, uh, what we would call uh, today uh, uh, comparative religions. And unfortunately, uh, history uh, and uh, <clears throat> religious studies uh, have uh, declined uh, tremendously in uh, North American schools uh, in recent years. Um, and th we have a generation that has now uh, very little appreciation of the differentiation between uh, uh, the right uh, to a public uh, arena to a uh, functioning government uh, free of religious control uh, uh, and one which uh, uh, in which uh, laws should be made to adhere to, to uh, uh, their own uh, particular uh, religious choice. And this is especially, of course, uh, the case in the United States, uh, where we see current controversies over, over abortion and, 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 other, and other issues, uh, all of which uh, uh, are, are being advocated uh, by people uh, following the dictates of, uh, of their religion. And uh, people must uh, learn to understand that uh, this, is, this, is, this is not acceptable, uh, that there is no role for religion uh, in public life. Uh, the religion uh, must be protected uh, and must be given. It's one of the, the four rights uh, that uh, George Holyoke uh, uh, identified, uh, but it must not be practiced. Uh, uh, the principles uh, 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 must not be uh, applied or enforced uh, uh, in the making of laws, in the selection of who is to sit in Congress or Parliament, uh, as the case may be. Um, religion belongs uh, in one's conscience, uh, uh, not in one's ballot uh, uh, on Election Day. Well, I agree with you. So, Ray, I've taken up a lot of your time, but in the few minutes we have left, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Well, I've been uh, limiting myself to uh, writing articles recently. I've, uh, I've written uh, uh, on uh, uh, the, the question of uh, is there extraterrestrial life? I've been able to interview uh, astronomers around the world. And uh, the conclusion is that, uh, yeah, there probably is. The, the question I ask is, are we alone? Uh, probably not. There probably is life elsewhere in the world. I also uh, found out some very interesting uh, material on uh, uh, who the Neanderthals really were and uh, the effect that uh, uh, the genes that we have inherited from them uh, have on our lives today, and uh, how uh, Neanderthal genes uh, played a role in uh, in our response to COVID. So there's lots of interesting things to write about, and I've I've been trying to to focus more on on that. And I am now working on a a series of articles on the on the rise of Christianity 
and uh, the effect that uh, Christianity may have had on uh, on uh, what we've known as the Dark Ages of the of the Middle Ages, uh, asking the question why, uh, following the advent of Christianity uh, to prominence in the second and third centuries, why was there no scientific uh, or technical or medical or astronomical or mathematical progress between the uh, that period and, and say the 15th century between uh, uh, the dark ages and and and, and the uh, <clears throat> the renaissance uh, what was the cause of that uh, so there's lots to mull over there and, and lots of things uh, still that, uh, that I want to write about those sound like a lot of really great ideas. <laughs> oh, yeah. So listen, I want to thank you again for being on the show today and being so generous with your time today. Um, you wrote in the introduction that Hollyoaks writing style, it was, and I'll quote you here, eminently Victorian, excessively formal, unduly polite in its arguments and verbose to an eye dazzling degree. And any of us who have read uh, Victorian uh, literature, Victorian writing knows exactly what you're talking about. Um, and you said, in other words, his appeal to modern readers is limited. <laughs> but I have to say that's not the case with your writing style. It was a pleasure to read your book. Uh, so thank you for going through all of that for us and bringing to us this amazing story about a man that I agree needs more attention. So, uh, yeah, again, thank you so much today. Well, th thank you, Carrie, and thank you to, to all the, the listeners who, who, uh, who uh, uh, stuck with us uh, through this, and, and I hope that uh, some will, will want to, uh, to read uh, uh, the book Inventing Secularism, and, uh, and I must uh, put in a plug that uh, your local book uh, dealer can order it for you if if you're so inclined that, thank you so much uh, carrie uh, uh thank you everyone who's tuned in today thank you ray goodbye goodbye i want to thank you for listening to new books in secularism a podcast channel on the new books network once again i'm carrie lynn evans and i've been speaking with ray argyle about his new book inventing secularism the radical life of george jacob holyoke published by mcfarland and company publishers if you'd like to find out more about Ray and his other books, check out rayargyle.com, and that's Argyle with a Y. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review in your podcast player, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. Tell me about it. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books Network page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview across the network. In the meantime, I'll wish you an à la prochaine from Quebec until my next conversation about new books. <laughs>